Well, in case you haven't noticed, it's Christmas, and many of us at this time of the year start thinking about giving gifts to others. One of the questions that we frequently hear asked is, what do you give the person who has everything? Uh, if that person has everything, there is no gift that you can give to them that they really need. They have no apparent needs. Um, some have more than others, but in reality, no one has everything. Uh, no one except God. So what do you give God? Do you have a gift to give him? Strangely enough, perhaps, there is something that we can give to God that he wants from us. He doesn't need it, but he does deserve it, and that is praise. He wants us to give him praise in every circumstance at all times. And not only that, he helps us out in doing this so that we'll be sure that we do it right. He tells us how to do it. He tells us how to pray. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself taught us how to pray. And the prayer that we read just a few minutes ago, we call the Lord's Prayer, given to us by Jesus so that we might say the things that we should say, remember the things that we should bring to him. And some of those things we've looked at already uh, over several sermons in the past. And some of them are kind of surprising, like you can ask for bread, and you can also ask that his kingdom would come. Big things and little things, minor and minute and uh, mundane things, but also great and glorious things. Now, some of us grew up reading uh, the King James Version of the Bible, and when you get to this prayer in Ma Matthew, you find that uh, there's something missing in our modern translations. Well, uh, there is a, a, a line that you have to look in your margin of your Bible, oftentimes it may say it there, if you are not fortunate enough to be handling, holding a King James version of the Bible. And that phrase that's missing in our English Standard versions, it says this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the reason why that is not in many of your modern translations is that Scholars who have done work uh, in, the, uh, in the field of textual, uh, textual science and research have found that most of the old manuscripts that we have that are very old but not original don't have that statement in there. It's not there. So uh, this, this statement, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is thought to have been added somewhere along the line. So you're sitting there asking yourself, why is this fellow preaching on a text that's not in the Bible? And I will defend that by saying a couple of things about it. First of all, um, it is a very biblical statement. Uh, if you have a, a Bible in front of you and you want to, you can turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 11, this, this statement that we call the doxology in uh, the Lord's Prayer is kind of uh, summarized a little bit from what David actually originally said. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, David says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory 
and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. You immediately, I think, see that this is a much fuller statement that is very sort of uh, summarized in that little phrase in the margin of our Bibles, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So it appears that uh, somewhere somebody picked up that uh, text from David, David's, we could call it David's doxology, and brought it over and stuck it in the text of Matthew. So I will say to you that it is a biblical phrase, this doxology, as I call it, in the Lord's Prayer. It is very biblical, and it is also very helpful, because if you pray the Lord's Prayer uh, and you get to the end of it, you feel like you need to say something to sort of tie it off. The last words are, but deliver us from evil. And so at that point, you're bound to say something like, um, in Jesus' name, amen, or just amen, or something. And so this phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, feels like a good thing to say. It feels like it belongs there. And it has belonged there and has been used uh, for many centuries in many churches. Now, the word doxology, uh, for those of you who are interested in it, uh, comes from Greek and then through Latin. Doxa having to do with the term glory or opinion. Doxa and lohia, lo, uh, ology at the end, of course, referring to an expression, a written or oral expression. So it is an expression of glory. It is expression of praise. And it is an expression of glory or praise to God. He deserves it. And when we get to the end of this prayer, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, it's a wonderful thing anyway, any prayer, to come to the end of the prayer and then think about who it was we've been talking to. We started out by saying our Father who's in heaven. And then we end by saying yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So... I wanted us to today to take a few minutes to think about the fact that this doxology, which is here in our margins of our Bible, is given to us and it is there for a purpose. And I think that it will reassure us and it will comfort us and it will inspire us as we pray the prayer that pleases God. First of all, to praise the Father because the kingdom is his, is reassuring to us. Some of us here can remember Pearl Harbor. I can't, but some of us can. And most of us can probably remember September 11th, 2001. What did you feel on a day like that? It, it felt like as the towers fell and the bombs dropped that the world was coming apart. The world was coming unglued. Who's in charge? Is anybody in charge? Have we lost our way? Is the world going to end today? Is there, will, will there be no tomorrow? For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the God of the Bible, the triune God, we know that the kingdom is his and that it is a kingdom that will last forever. We know that God is still on the throne 
And when all seems to break loose, then we think once again, we go to that comforting thought that the kingdom is his and he is the rightful ruler of everything, of all that exists. When we think of Christ as king or the kingdom of God, it feels like a, a, a feeble way of thinking about God because kings we know in this world are just regular people who happen to be in charge of a certain area. We just don't have a lot of categories to talk about someone who rules over everything. So we call him the king. We call it the kingdom of God. And we know that he is king of kings and lord of lords, as it says in the book of Revelation. If you can think about the most powerful political leader ever, whoever lived, uh, and then think, this God is over that person, then you begin to get a little bit of an idea of how great he is. And he is due all praise because he made all things. He is due our praise. He deserves our worship and our adoration because he made mankind. He is our creator and he sustains all things. He has not just set it up and let it go. He is actively involved by his providence in everything that happens. I love the words of John chapter 1 where John the Apostle in verse 3 and 4 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what he says about the word. The word that would become flesh and live among us, God with us. And so without the word, you created all things. Without this king, we would have nothing and we would be nothing. Not only that, his kingdom is forever. All earthly kingdoms rise and fall. They are limited by time uh, and by the death of the king. They are limited in space by the existence of competing kingdoms. Hitler sought to establish a government that would last for a thousand years. At one point, it appeared that nothing could stop him. As his armies swept across Europe, there was no stopping the Blitzkrieg. But in retrospect, today and ever since, uh, he paraded, in retrospect, it seems that he paraded arrogantly like a pompous fool for only 12 awful years. And then he died in infamy and disgrace by his own hand. And today... You can't find a grave marker for him. But the kingdom of God will never end. His kingdom is forever. The triune God of the Bible is the true ruler of all that is. He is infinite and eternal in his being and his power. So we praise him with our, our doxology and with our prayer that his kingdom would come. And it is reassuring to us to know that the kingdom is his. We also praise him because he calls us to his kingdom. We're not on the outside looking in, but we actually are invited to be part of that kingdom. Mark 1, when Jesus uh, began his ministry in Mark chapter 1, uh, the uh, gospel writer wrote this in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God 
and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Some did believe the gospel, some did repent. And John writes in his gospel, to all who received him and believed on his name, he gave power to become the children of God. That call still goes out to us to come to him, to to be reconciled to the king to whom we have sinned and disobeyed by the mercy and blood of Christ upon the cross for sinners. We are made his children. We are reconciled to God. We are members of his kingdom. We are citizens of his kingdom. Oh, yes, we love the United States and like Virginia but we're not members of this kingdom. This is not our ultimate destiny. Do you know the king? Is he your king? Are you a citizen of his kingdom? Jesus commanded his hearers to repent and believe the gospel. The question is, why wouldn't anyone run to this opportunity? Why is this not a no-brainer? Why would you turn from an offer like this when the king calls and says, come, Believe in me, repent of your sins, be forgiven, and be received as a child. One obstacle is certainly pride. At one point, Jesus said to his disciples, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Many of us who uh, are not that old have remembered when we were children and we couldn't wait to grow up. We couldn't wait to become adults. We don't want to go back to being children again. We're not talking about being childish. We're talking about being childlike in the sense of being trusting, of believing, of not being so set on ourselves and so desirous of being uh, free, so to speak, from all restraints that our parents had on us. We want to be turned loose like a bird fly. But Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So pride can keep us from bowing before the king because we won't recognize him. We want to be free, what we think is free. Another obstacle of coming to the kingdom is the obstacle of self-righteousness. There is an incident in John chapter 3 in the gospel of John where Jesus meets Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus, a ruler and teacher of the Jews, he's described as And he begins to interact with Jesus, and soon Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused, and the conversation goes on. But the point here is that in ourselves, we cannot bring about a a second birth, a rebirth. This is not in our power. We need to be born again by the Spirit. This is a work that God does in us. And it is evidenced by the fact that we believe and that we repent of our sins. I'm pretty sure that some of us have been born again and we didn't even, weren't even aware of it until we found ourselves believing and repenting. There was a work of God that went on in our hearts, though, and it was necessary When once we thought that all of this was nonsense and foolishness and we wanted to have nothing to do with it, God turned our hearts toward him by a new birth, a birth 
brought about by the Spirit of God, a supernatural work of God in us. You can see this exemplified in uh, Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells a story about two men who go to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee was the most upstanding and honored person in the community, one who kept the law faithfully. And this man stood in the temple and began to recite all of his good works. And then the poor tax collector, wretched and despised tax collector, began to just beat on his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus pronounced this verdict. He said that this one, that is this tax collector, went down to his house justified. He evidenced new birth because he repented and he believed. And he was counted as righteous before and by the king, by the mercy and grace that Christ brought to save his people from their sin. So we, the kingdom is not ours, but it's his. And for this, we praise him. Yet he also calls us to enter by faith and repentance into the kingdom and be one of his. He allows us to speak to him as father. And so we find that to praise the father because the kingdom is of his is his is reassuring to us in what often appears to be a completely chaotic world. Secondly, to praise the father because the power is his is comforting to us. We know that he is the rightful ruler of all things, or assuming we do. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he rules. It is his kingdom. But is he able to carry out his will? Is it possible that he has authority but not power? This doxology says that the power is his too. He has both the power and the authority to do everything that he intends to do and will do. He controls the creation. He knows the sparrows who fall. He knows the number of the hairs of your head. He controls the toss of the die. Nothing is outside of his control. No one is outside of his control. Sometimes we find ourselves in some strange circumstance, and we ask ourselves, why did this happen? And we feel very perplexed, and we wonder. We may never fully know the answers to those kind of questions that we ask, but we do know that God is over all things, that he is in charge of everything that happens, and nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens just by coincidence. Nothing happens by luck. There is no such thing as luck. So we need to think about this because if we trust in him, it is comforting to know that nothing escapes his control. Sometimes we pray and we are aware that he is willing to do what we ask, but maybe, just maybe, we don't see immediate answers and we wonder if he is able to do what we ask. And then we remind ourselves, his is the power forever. Now, it's important to think about the fact that God is not like us. 
he is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent as we do. As human beings, our actions are generally often mixed, probably always mixed in some way. We have power, but we can use it for wrong purposes because our power and our wisdom are not linked together necessarily or inseparably. Sometimes we exercise our power unwisely, but God never does because his his character, his nature, his perfections or his attributes, as some would call them, are all intertwined. They cannot be separated into parts. Sometimes we act with humor and sometimes we act with justice and sometimes we don't. But it's always mixed, but not with God. In question four of the shorter catechism, what is God? I will uh, point you to this once again in the risk of uh, overstating this, but this can't be really improved upon. What is God? Uh, It's there on the screen. Let's read it together. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now we need to remember that these perfections of God are never separated from each other. These these qualities are not intermittent. That means like a flashing light off and on. These, These perfections of God, these qualities of God that we understand in our feeble way are not Um, are not separate silos that are disconnected from one another. We cannot say, for example, that God was good but not just in some matter. He is always good and he is always just. We cannot say in some circumstance that God was powerful but he was not wise in some event. He is always powerful. And he is always wise. And he is always all of the things that he is and all of the things that he ever was. So we trust him because his power is absolute, but is exercised for us with wisdom and goodness and holiness and justice. And he is unchangeable. Time does not change him. Location does not change him. He is always all the things that he ever was. Now, I realize that some of you might be thinking this as a common objection, and that is that since there is evil and injustice in this present world, God must either not be all-powerful or he must not be all-good or maybe both. And this is a common complaint about this concept of God. And as believers, we would answer that God is always all-powerful and always all-good, but he is also infinite in his wisdom and in truth. And we do not know all that he knows. And so our judgment that we might put on God to find fault with him, that he can't possibly be loving, all-loving or all-powerful at the same time is based on limited information, but it's based on an assumption that we don't have limited information. 
which is a wrong assumption. The prophet Isaiah writes in 50, uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, there is great injustice in the world. Yes, God permits Satan to act and people to sin, but he uses it for our good and his glory. And someday we will stand in awe of him and understand much more than we do today of how this works. So when his ways are not clear, we trust him. Just as he, he is, uh, as his being is infinite and eternal and far above us, so his truth is infinite and eternal and far above us. But we know him. He is our father. And by his mercy to us in his son, he lives in us by his spirit. He revives our hearts when we faint. He leads us beside still waters. And he restores our souls. We praise him because all power is his. We ask that his will would be done and it will be done because he cannot fail. And we are comforted when we praise him for the power is his because he is always wise and good in using his power. Number three, to praise the father because the glory is his is inspiring to us. Now, the whole thing of glory is a subject which I feel like I should just sit down and we should all just sit here in silence and think about it. I'm going to say things that are just baby talk, okay? But it's the best we can do. What do we mean by glory? Glory comes from the word that means something to do with weight or worthiness, something that's heavy, something that's important, it's big. It's glory. It's glorious. Yours is the glory, we say in this prayer. God, it's your glory. Yours is the glory. On a human level, it's easy to see how we give glory to each other. We, we like glory. We like to be glorified. We like to be liked. Uh, we exalt the abilities and actions of someone or some people. Celebrities seek glory, and we give it to them. We like them. We're impressed with them. They entertain us. Our sports heroes, they too, they entertain us. They, we like them. We, we're impressed with them. They can do things no one else can do. And sometimes, and too occasionally, too, too rarely, a sports figure or a celebrity will give praise to God. And we smile and we say, that's great. Praise God for that. But unfortunately, it's too rare. But on a human level, glory is attributed to those who are outstanding in some way. It does, it's, if someone does something better than anyone else, they may make the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, Frankly, many of these records are very frivolous, like the hot dog eating champion. Uh, so what? I mean, really, personally, um, 
I do not see anything noble about a person eating 71 hot dogs in a row. Um, we give glory for stupid things. We give th glory for some things that are maybe a little bit more important than others. But the glory that belongs to God is a glory of the uniqueness of God. He alone is God. When we say yours is the glory to God, we mean something far above anything that human beings could think of or achieve. His glory is seen in all his perfections and all of the characteristics that we just read about. He is holy. That is, he is completely other. There is none like him. He is completely righteous and just. He is unchangeable because he is perfect. And therefore, he can never regress and he can never improve in some way. He is unchangeable. He is perfect. He is not just the greatest God. He is the only God. There is no one in category with him. There is no one competing with him. He is perfect in his being. He ha always has been. He is timeless. We like to sit around those old timers and talk about the good old days. And we listen and we are impressed with each other. But our lives are a mere vapor. God has always been. And there is when there was nothing else, there was God. He is perfect in his being. He is perfect in his truth. He knows all there is to know. No one can inform him of anything. He is glorious in truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is perfect in goodness, which includes his love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace. Have you thought of this? The fruit of the Spirit is a fruit of the Spirit of God. We list them off in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are qualities which God possesses, but he puts in us by his spirit. So he not only possesses these himself in perfection, but he produces these in us by his spirit. Those who have been born again by his spirit are able to do things that no human could do without him. When we humans set records and become the best at a thing, we know that most likely someday, sooner or later, that record will be broken. Then for a moment, the new record holder has the spotlight, but only for a moment. But God has no rivals who threaten his positions. God is beyond equal in every way that he exists. Not only that, all other achievers owe their success to him who made them, who gave them breath, who gave them the abilities to accomplish whatever they did, hot dogs or otherwise. The glory is his. All the glory is his. It is not mine. It is not yours. And it is not ours. He is worthy of every praise. We struggle to give him a worthy doxology. And we feel we fall short. How can we say what we should say to him. There are no words to express it. I was reminded of this old hymn that apparently has been revived uh, by a contemporary group about the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue 
nor pen can ever tell. Could we think, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. We will never get to the end of it. It will go on and on if we try to praise him. When Jesus told his disciples to pray this prayer to our Father in heaven, he was inviting all who are his into the glory of God. He shares his glory with us. Jesus did not instruct us to pray something that is not God's will. He told us to pray in the Father's name and for the Father's name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. He told us to pray that we would have our daily bread, that we would have forgiveness for our sins, and that we would have protection from temptation and evil. Jesus could not have meant for us to pray for something that his father and our father could not or would not grant. Jesus told us to ask for it. He meant for us to receive it. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said this in relationship to this idea of God telling us to pray for something because he wants to give us that thing. Spurgeon says this, I cannot imagine any one of you tantalizing your child by exciting in him a desire that you did not intend to gratify. It would be a very ungenerous thing to offer alms to the poor. And then when they hold out their hand for it to mock their poverty with a denial. It would be a cruel addition to the miseries of the sick if they were taken to the hospital and there left to die, untended and uncared for. Where God leads you to pray, he means you to receive. To praise the Father because the glory is his is inspiring to his people. And we are also inspired as we come to this table before us this morning. Here we have before us a tangible reminder of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Here we reenact the scene that took place on that night in which Jesus was betrayed, where he told his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for forgiveness of sins. And when we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We recognize the glorious mercy of our Savior so that we might be forgiven and welcomed into his kingdom. This doxology ends with two words, forever and amen. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Certainly to ponder the concept of endless time is to invite a severe headache. I think about it, but I don't think about it long. Forever? Forever. God is forever. No beginning and no end. He exists before time and after time, and outside of time. And as the, the psalmist in Psalm 102 
we read these words. Psalm 102, 11 and 12. My days, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And then later in that same Psalm 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure and their offspring shall be established before you. So we close this prayer with a doxology and we close this doxology with the exclamation, Amen, so be it. Father, let us pray that prayer together. Can we put that up? Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.